Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by FedEx. Small and medium businesses need happy customers. That's why FedEx offers picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and over 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Capital One Bank. With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions, even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. So, Levitt, when we first thought about starting a Twitter account for Freakonomics, um, a couple smart media consultants told me that uh, it would be very poor form to expect people to follow us unless we followed a lot of people as well, that it was, there was really a reciprocity at work here. And, and we didn't follow that advice. And we, we follow zero people on our Twitter account. Um, how, how do you feel about that? We have a Twitter account? <laughs> From American Public Media and WNYC, this is Freakonomics Radio. Today, how antisocial can you be on a social networking site? Here's your host, Stephen Dubner. So we did start a Twitter account, but we aren't what you'd call aggressive tweeters. We don't tell people what we had for breakfast or what show we're watching on TV or which kid lost which tooth. In fact, all, all we really do is send out links to our blog posts or this podcast, stuff like that. But here's the thing. We have a lot of followers, at least what seems to me like a lot of followers, about 250,000 people. Now, that probably doesn't mean much. It costs nothing to follow someone on Twitter. All you have to do is click your mouse one time. And a lot of these people probably never read a single thing we tweet, but still, it's kind of cool. But as I told Levitt, we don't follow anyone on Twitter. It just seemed like... If you're going to follow some people, then you'd feel bad about not following other people. And the next thing you know, you're spending your whole day on Twitter figuring out who to follow and who to be followed by. So for us, Twitter is a one-way street. It's a little bullhorn, nothing more. So here's a question for you. Does that make us jerks? Or since we're talking about Twitter, does it make us twerks? Do you think Freakonomics should start following more people on Twitter? Okay, my name is Duncan Watts. I'm a principal research scientist at Yahoo Research, uh, where I run a group called the Human Social Dynamics Group. And uh, we're interested in all sorts of questions that have to do with social networks uh, and how information diffuses through social networks, how people influence each other, and how all of this uh, helps us to understand uh, social behavior. Duncan Watts is a sociologist who taught at Columbia before moving on to Yahoo. He's at the forefront of what's called network theory, how people are connected, whether in person or virtually, and what those connections yield. He's written a few books, Six Degrees, a sort of academic take on the Kevin Bacon thing, and a new book, Everything is Obvious Once You Know the Answer. It's about common sense and how it lets us down. Watts still writes a lot of academic papers, too. His latest is called 
Who says what to whom on Twitter? It's true that, you know, there are millions of, of users on Twitter who are listening to millions of other users. Uh, but we also find that there's a remarkable concentration of attention. So about um, 50% of all tweets that a random person on Twitter receives on any given day come from uh, just 20,000 users, right? So that's about uh, one half of one-tenth of a percent of all the users on Twitter. What do you call this as a sociologist then in terms of the distribution? Well, it's a skewed distribution, mm-hmm. you know, but you certainly see this kind of uh, distribution in activity. If you look at, uh, you know, how active people are on Twitter, you see the same thing where there's a small number of people who are very, very active. Were you surprised to find a concentration that intense? Well, I mean, we are used to seeing these skew distributions, so I yeah, think yeah. not in principle. Uh, it was still striking just how concentrated it was. It, it may be more striking to people who don't know what these distributions usually look like. I, I mean, it may be more surprising to people who've been hearing for, for the past couple of years that Twitter is the great democratization of communication. And, and it is. But what happens in democracies is that everybody <laughs> pays attention to the same people. Um, you know, so I, I think that, that, that uh, it, it might change our view of democratization. So a relatively tiny group of people on Twitter wield most of the power. Remind you of any place else you know, like the offline world? Duncan Watts says he became a sociologist to study exactly this kind of thing, whose voices get heard in social situations, how people in groups interact, how groups form, how firms form, how markets form. This is the kind of thing sociologists have been fascinated with since the beginning of – well, since the beginning of sociology – They call it the micro-macro problem. In other fields, it's sometimes called emergence. It's when you put a bunch of elements together and somehow come out with more than just the sum of its parts. The trouble is, for a sociologist like Watts, this kind of thing has been pretty tough to quantify, or at least it used to be. The problem is that, uh, you know, actually measuring any of this, observing any of this has been historically impossible. So... Although, you know, we have theories about social networks that go back, you know, 50 or 60 years and the sort of, you know, quantitative study of social networks goes back almost as long, uh, in practice, it's been restricted to very small groups of people. Uh, as many statics. people as you could hit with a clipboard and a questionnaire or something, something like, like that, that right? right? You know, you're asking, you know, you're handing out survey tools or, you're, or you know, in some great, you know, some of the classic studies, you know, uh, sociologists would even sort of sit in a, in a donut shop and record painstakingly every single time a person talked to another person and then they would sort of extract the communication uh, network out of these interactions <laughs> that they observe, which is very which creative. Today se- well, but yeah. today seems extremely archaic, right? I mean, well, it is. The sample size is tiny. The sample pollution, I guess, is strong depending on which coffee shop you happen yeah. to pick, right? And you can only do it for, you know, until you, your brain explodes. <laughs> which is, you know, in, for most humans, a couple of hours. So... <laughs> Uh, so you can't really sort of measure anything or observe anything that's happening over extended periods of time. The mountains of data being generated in an online ecosystem like Twitter are enough to make a sociologist like Duncan Watts put down his clipboard and drool. Twitter has about 200 million registered users, sending out more than 130 million tweets. That's 130 million data points every day. 
Now, even from those broad numbers, you can tell for every aggressive user tweeting, let's say, 20 times a day, there's an army of folks who just sit still, keep quiet, or maybe who signed up just because everybody else was signing up the way everybody else used to sign up to write a blog and then abandoned it. But if you're a sociologist, even these things are good to know. Social media sites like Twitter and Facebook are changing the way academics see the world, and they may also change the way people like you and me see it. What we're seeing is actually not different from how people behave offline. It's just that we have a, a, a vastly in, increased ability to observe it, and so it, it sort of seems different. Um, you know, people uh, seem to think that they have many more friends now uh, because of Facebook than they used to have. Uh, and that at the same time, the quality of those friendships has somehow diminished, right? I'm, I'm oversimplifying, but this is sort of a, a refrain that you hear over and over again, particularly in, in the media. People are sort of wringing their hands over how, you know, friendship has become somehow diluted. But for most people, this is actually not true, right? For most ordinary Facebook users, uh, the people that they're friends with on Facebook are, in fact, people that they know, right? Not through Facebook, but through some other uh, means because they, you know, they went to school with them or they work with them or they met them at a conference or they, you know, had some interaction with them at a social gathering. Now, many of them may actually not be uh, close friends. Uh, and without Facebook around, they may not have a record of these interactions existing. And so if you ask them in a pre-Facebook world how many friends they had, they probably would say, oh, you know, a few dozen or something, right? Because they would just be thinking about people who they really count as friends. But now we have Facebook to remind us that we have all these kind of this sort of vastly larger halo of peripheral relationships. Uh, and so we sort of feel like we have more friends and somehow that they're less uh, real than the ones we used to have. But actually, we always had them. So there's sort of an interesting kind of measurement effect here where mm -hmm. you, you, you simply allow people to measure things and it changes their perception of those things. So it's it sort of... You know, I don't want to say that nothing is different online because clearly there are things that are different. And it might just be because it's anonymity, right? If you took the anonymity away from online conversations, if you made people disclose, uh, you know, if you made them, you know, log in through Facebook or something where they had to disclose their true identity, uh, I bet a lot of that would go away. So right. anonymity is strong. But he, he, I mean, you're, you're right. And the, the division or the, the gap can be even something less um, profound than anonymity. Like, if you're driving in your car and somebody cuts you off, you might flip them the bird or do what? But right. if walking on the street and they cut you off on the sidewalk, the physical, pro physical proximity changes right. everything. That's, so a, that's a great analogy. And in fact, you know, there's a, the, I'm sure you're familiar with the, uh, the classic obedience studies of Stanley Milgram back in the 1950s. And he found exactly this kind of result. Uh, the subject of the experiment was told that he was conducting a learning experiment on, on, on someone else who, who turned out to be an actor, and he was supposed to be giving this person electric shocks uh, whenever they made a mistake. And so the actor was sort of pretending to be, you know, getting more and more uh, tortured by these shocks, and, and the shocking result uh, was that a remarkable number of people cranked up the, the voltage to, to sort of... Um, uh, lethal levels simply because some experimenter was telling them to do that. Now, what a, a, a lesser known uh, result of those experiments is that Milgram tried a bunch of different um, uh, conditions. You know, in one case, they, they actually had to sit there and hold the subject's hand on the plate. Um, and so they were sort of physically in contact with the person they were shocking. 
In another one, the guy was visible, but in another room, in another one, he was uh, on the other side of a wall. So you could hear him, but you couldn't see Mm. him. And sure enough, the further that person was away, the more sort of socially distant they were, the more inclined people were to to exercise what seemed like cruelty. I didn't know that. That's interesting. So I I think it's an excellent point that you raise. Coming up, what do Barack Obama and Lady Gaga have in common? And why is Justin Halpern way cooler than either of them? I'm your biggest fan, I'll follow you until you love me. Papa, Papa Roxy. Baby, there's no other superstar, you know that I'll be. You Papa, Papa Roxy. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example, combining assertive on-road performance with signature Range Rover refinement and commanding all-terrain capability. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable yet. Range Rover Sport redefines sporting luxury, an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and effortless composure. Combining dynamic sporting personality with the peerless refinement you expect, Range Rover Sport communicates power, performance, and agility. Advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Amica Insurance. Amica Insurance is all about empathy. They know your auto, home, and life insurance are more than just policies. Home insurance is about protecting the life you've built. Auto insurance is there to protect you on the road ahead. That's why Amica takes a consultative approach to help protect what matters most to you. They are a customer-owned insurance company that puts your needs first, and their representatives are available 24-7 for claim-related matters. As Amica says, empathy is our best policy. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close? or travel somewhere far away. At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. From American Public Media and WNYC, this is Freakonomics Radio. Here's your host, Stephen Dubner. There's a website called Twitterholic. It tracks the most popular tweeters, shows how many people follow them, and how many they, in turn, follow. If you like Twitter at all, you have to go to the site. You can thank me later. Now, at the top of the list is Lady Gaga, with nearly 8.5 million followers. Next are Justin Bieber, Britney Spears, and Barack Obama. The president has about 6.8 million followers. And here's what's interesting. All four of these people also follow a lot of tweeters, at least 100,000 each. 
President Obama, or more likely someone who works for Obama, follows more than 700,000 people. But number five on the list is Kim Kardashian with nearly six and a half million followers. And you know how many people she follows? 118. Al Gore has 2.2 million followers. He follows nine people. In fact, once you get past that top four of power tweeters, the Gaga Bieber, Brittany Obama quartet, the ratio plummets. Which made me wonder, if you want a lot of Twitter followers, do you need to follow a lot of people yourself? I asked Duncan Watts to look into the numbers for the top 1,000 users. His conclusion? There's no trend, no correlation between following and being followed. But still, if our online lives really are just an extension of our offline lives, just as a matter of common courtesy, shouldn't you reciprocate? Uh, my name is Justin Halpern, and I created Shit My Dad Says, and I'm author of a book by the same name and uh, one of the writers of the television show by the same name. All right. And, and Justin, how would you then assess the importance of Twitter in your life and career? I would say it is possibly the most important thing aside from my father. <laughs> um, without Twitter, I, I, uh, I definitely don't think any of what has just happened in my life happens. I'm afraid if we get internet, I'll have to move to higher ground. Here's the blurb from Halpern's Twitter page. It says, I'm 29. I live with my 74-year-old dad. He is awesome. I just write down shit that he says. The shit that Halpern's dad says has attracted a lot of readers, more than 2 million followers on Twitter. In fact, it was his Twitter feed that led to the book that led to the TV show. He has more Twitter followers than Arnold Schwarzenegger, Lindsay Lohan, and the Dalai Lama. So as of this moment, um, it looks like you have 2,016,224 people following you on Twitter. And what I want to know from you is with more than 2 million people following you, I mean, that's a lot of people. How many do you follow? Uh, I only follow one person. Who do you follow? <laughs> uh, I only follow LeVar Burton. Of, of Reading Rainbow uh, fame. <laughs> Reading Rainbow fame and also Star Trek The Next Generation fame, Roots fame. That's true. I, I, I did not give him enough uh, accolades. And you thought, if I'm going to follow one person, LeVar Burton seems to be deserving of that honor. I, uh, yeah, I didn't I – didn't, uh, yeah, I, I did think that. <laughs> and uh, at, at the time that you decided to follow LeVar Burton and LeVar Burton only, how many followers did you have? I had zero. <laughs> oh, so yeah. this was before Shit My Dad Says was Shit My Dad Says even. It was. It was. It was this is when Shit My Dad Says was, was uh, read by me and one friend who didn't have a Twitter account. So forgive my ignorance on this score, but I see that you generally, at least in the last year, let's say, you haven't tweeted very much, maybe 50 tweets in the past year, which, look, if you can build a brand called Shit My Dad Says out of Shit Your Dad Says and just do it in 50 posts a year, that means that you're wonderfully efficient and economical. But back in the day, were you tweeting a lot more? I was. When I first started, I was, I was, I was living with him and, and normally sitting next to him for like eight to 10 hours a day working. So uh, I was getting a lot of stuff and I would, I would tweet like, you know, one thing a day. And, and then since I've been working and I, and I, haven't, been, uh, I haven't been near him as much, it, it, it goes down. So what does it say to you that you – a guy who is tweeting primarily or maybe even only things that someone else 
i.e. your father, actually says, and you're only doing it like 50 times a year, and yet you still have 2 million people following you. What does that tell you about kind of the dynamic or the bullhorn nature of Twitter? I, I think it's if you like the character of my father, you know, then you know you're only going to get stuff that he says. And and I think that <clears throat> that's worked really well. I don't think people really cared if I interacted with them or not. Have people contacted you, though, over the years and said, hey, you know, you've become a big deal guy now with shit my dad says, and I follow you and I like it, but man – you only follow one guy and it's another famous guy. That's just not fair. Do people give you trouble for that? <laughs> yeah, I got one, one, one message was, uh, who do you think you are to only follow one person? Uh, and I didn't really have a response to that other than, I don't think I'm anybody. <laughs> I just only follow LeVar Burton. <laughs> a reading rainbow. So Justin Halpern has had incredible success on Twitter, which is a social media ecosystem, by essentially being antisocial. Uh, is there anything wrong with that? If people like to follow him, who are we to say that he has to reciprocate? At least he's not what Twitter insiders call the one-night stand, where you sign up to follow lots of people, hoping they'll follow you back, and then you dump them a day later. Here's Duncan Watts again. I, I think uh, Justin Halpern might be more the exception than the rule. Uh, I think that there are sort of bona fide Twitter-generated celebrities, people who were not known uh, beforehand, who became known through their activity on Twitter. Uh, although even Justin Halpern, you know, probably wouldn't be nearly as famous as he is if, you know, he hadn't got a, a, a book deal that became a bestseller <laughs> and a TV show. And so, so you know, you're always sort of... Uh, you know, you, you one of the dangers of studying a single you know platform like Twitter is that you see a signal on it, and you want to sort of understand the cause. Uh, you know, why did somebody become popular? And the answer often lies outside of the system that you're studying. So, most of the, I think, all of the top ten most followed people are are household names, right? You know, Ashton Kutcher, Oprah Winfrey. Um, Lady Gaga. I mean, these are people who were famous before Twitter came along, and they're still famous. Um, and they're famous not because of Twitter, but because they're on TV all the time, and they're in all the celebrity magazines. And there's a whole sort of, you know, much much larger media ecosystem that is is sort of constantly putting them in our in our faces. But let me ask you this: If I look at the very top tweeters, l mm. let me take the top four. We've got Lady Gaga, Justin Bieber, Britney Spears, and Barack Obama. So those yep. are, as you said, ho household names to the nth degree. Now, they have – the four top followers have uh, between six and – six or seven million followers mm -hmm. each, let's say. Okay, But they also follow a lot of people. So Obama, for instance, has six and a half or seven million followers. But Barack Obama follows more than 700,000 people on mm -hmm. Twitter. Now, we assume he's not actually reading their tweets. Mm -hmm. So what's the point? Well, so again, it's, it's worth emphasizing again here that Twitter is not a social network. Now, social networks are characterized by very, very high levels of reciprocity. So if I say that I'm friends with you, it's very likely that you will also say that you're friends with me. It's not always true, but it's very often the case that... And if not, then I stop being a participant in that social network. It's a funny kind of friendship if only one person thinks that it exists. Okay. So mm. uh, whereas in, in communication uh, uh, networks, it's totally different. You know, 
you know, the entire nation can watch Barack Obama give the State of the Union address, but he can't, you know, watch everybody's YouTube videos. True. Right? So there's True a- enough. But what would be the what would the purpose be then if I'm Barack Obama and I have a Twitter feed? Um, and I have I or someone around me, presumably not me myself, yep. has, has come to the conclusion that um, we should tweet uh, to you know get our message out. It makes perfect yep. sense, and we should get millions of followers because we're communicators yep. uh, almost above all. But also, why do I want to follow seven hundred thousand people? What's in it for me? Is it just the the appearance of reciprocity that is supposed to translate into mm-hmm. some general feeling of goodwill? Well, I actually think that my, my, my guess is that, that different kinds of users have uh, different reasons for using Twitter. Let me ask you this. Um, there are some people then who are followed by a great, great, great many people and yet who follow nobody. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, Stephen Colbert is followed by more than two million people. It's a lot of Twitter followers yep. and follows zero. What do you – first of all, do you have a name for people like that and, <laughs> and, and what, what, what can you say about them? Well – uh, you know, putting on my amateur armchair psychologist hat here, um, I, I would say that it's almost a status symbol to be followed by many people and follow uh, and follow very few. It's sort of like having lots of followers, even though you don't tweet very much. It's sort of like, well, I'm not even really trying, you know, and I'm still popular. Um, uh, so, uh, but you know, I, I, I'm going to again guess that there are, you know, sort of. There, these are all individual people with their own agendas and psychologies, and uh, uh, you know there, there's probably as many reasons for these patterns as as there are people. Not even trying, and still popular. Wow, is that how we want to be? I've seen firsthand how successful Justin Halpern is, and he only follows Jordy LaForge. I heard Duncan Watts say that you don't necessarily have to follow to be followed. Still, is that how Freakonomics should behave on Twitter? Steve Levitt and I had a summit the other day. We talked it over. Well, I would say, given that neither you nor I has ever gone on Twitter, other than to send out our blog posts, that why don't we follow everyone since we don't look at what they're saying anyway and if it makes people feel good to follow them why not follow every single person on Twitter that could be our claim to fame is that we follow every person on Twitter as long as we never look at the account it won't cost us anything I like it I like the strategy or alternately we could follow one person we could pick one dedicate ourselves to that person's feed and really pay attention so if if it were one who would you want to follow Lindsay Lohan who would you follow? Who would I follow? I'll tell you what I'd do. I'd auction it off. I'd say, we haven't followed anybody. It's time for us to follow someone. What's the highest bidder? The strangest thing to me about Twitter is I'd never been on Twitter, and I went on, and I had a Twitter account, and it had one tweet, and it had my picture, and it was from me, and I don't, and some person faked it. I don't know why they stopped after one, but they've only did one post. They still had, you know, a couple thousand followers from that one post. So maybe, uh, maybe it's time for that person to get busy and start doing some more posts. as me. What was the tweet that the fake Steve Levitt tweeted? It was the traditional first tweet. Here I am. Time to get going on Twitter. Something like that. 
So what does that say to you, though, that you, you got a fake Steve Levitt out there who, who makes one totally worthless tweet and it gets a thousand or two followers? What does that say to you about the value of time that people engage in the Twitter atmosphere? Well, I'm, I'm offended that the guy didn't do more posts. I want to see what I have to say. Freakonomics Radio is a co-production of WNYC, American Public Media, and Dubner Productions. This episode was produced by Susie Lechtenberg and mixed by David Herman and Michael Raphael. Our staff includes Chris Neary, Colin Campbell, and Beret Lamb. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and you'll get the next episode in your sleep. You can find more audio at FreakonomicsRadio.com. And as always, if you want to read more about the hidden side of everything, go to Freakonomics.com. So tell me what it's gonna be, cause I got it all shot it. You can go and follow me, cause I know that. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because. I have a charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Uh, hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Save big money on everything. Now at Menards. Make quick work of your outdoor cleaning project with Masterforce Outdoor and Landscaping Tools. The 80-volt cordless trimmer is powerful, efficient, and hassle-free. So you spend less time working on your yard and more time enjoying the results. On sale now through May 19th. Check out our wide selection of Masterforce tools and see the rest of our deals on Menards.com. Save big money.